0: Welcome to everyone who's joining us uh, for our Wednesday night devotional time, and uh, we're going to be beginning our study tonight in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So if you would go ahead and open your Bible to that place, 2 Chronicles 20, and uh, as you're turning there, I'll, uh, I'll mention some of what I'm planning on doing tonight, uh, and just kind of talk you through what my thought process is for how we're going to study for a few minutes tonight. Uh, So, basically, in these Wednesday night sessions that we've been having for the last month or so, uh, we've been talking about how we can grow spiritually, and uh, especially how we can use this time where we are uh, sort of outside of our normal routines, and a lot of the things that we typically do are compromised or uh, shut down. And uh, so, we want to use this time for good, and we want to try to grow spiritually. And one of the most important and most neglected areas that we we deal with is prayer and so last week we talked about how we should pray without ceasing and uh, especially the idea of establishing a pattern and a habit of prayer that will continue no matter what's going on in life but when I preached that and we thought, we studied about that I had more that I wanted to say there was some more meat left on the bone there uh, particularly as I was looking through some of that material uh, there were a lot of prayers in the Old Testament that stood out to me as great examples of what it means to pray. And part of what I want to do tonight is to challenge us not just to pray more, but to pray deeper. And what that's going to mean is that we pray differently. So when we pray, we all have learned how to pray from other people. Uh, Someone taught us and we modeled our praying after them. Usually that means we have certain words and phrases we use, ways that we talk, things that we're comfortable saying... And so what I'm going to suggest is that we can use the Bible as a way to get some new voices into our praying, to hear other people talking to God and the way they address God and see what we can learn from them, see how we can grow deeper in our prayers. But as, uh, because of that, because it's different and new, there are going to be some growing pains in it. So I'm just going to ask us uh, to try on a new prayer tonight. And I use the phrase try on because I want to draw the picture of Of These prayers kind of being like clothes, that we get some new clothes and it might be that they don't fit just right or they feel a little tight here or there or loose here or there. And maybe we have to break them in. Uh, And in the same way, when we try a new prayer, there's going to be a little discomfort and we're going to have some things about it that don't feel like they quite fit us. But over time, when we get used to these ideas and these ways of thinking, I think you'll see that these will bless us. And then when the situation arises, we can pull that out of our closet. We can pull that prayer out and say, I know how to talk to God in a time like this. So that's why we're here in 2 Chronicles 20. I want to talk about the first kind of prayer, which is Jehoshaphat's prayer. Jehoshaphat prays, I don't know what to do. So let's, let's look in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 1. It says, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Maonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are at Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. He is one of the good kings. And something happens here that makes him afraid. Moab and Ammon are coming to attack him. And it says specifically he was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. He also urges the people to fast. And the idea there is call on God yourselves and I'll call on God. But we actually have a record of what Jehoshaphat says to God in verse 5. It says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land from before your people Israel and give it to forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction." there's a lot going on in this prayer. I think you can see that. We're not going to talk about every aspect of this, but I want you to see the general thread of what Jehoshaphat is saying. He starts by acknowledging God's rule in verse 6. You rule over all the kingdoms and nations, and you have power and might. Nobody's able to withstand you, and he says that specifically God has driven out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and given it to Israel, and that's in verse 7 there, and in the process of doing that there are a couple of nations that Israel went through, walked past, and did not invade, Moab and Ammon. We're going to get to those before too long in our uh, readings through the uh, Old Testament in our daily devotionals. And so Jehoshaphat says, you know, we spared them, and now they've rewarded us by trying to undo what you did. You gave us this land, they're trying to kick us out of this land. So What we have done as your people is is we have set up a place, a sanctuary for your name. This is verse 8 and 9. And the purpose of the sanctuary is just so when there are occasions of disaster and there are famines and there are diseases and there are things that, that trouble us, we can come to that place where your name is and ask for your help and you'll hear us. So you see how much Jehoshaphat is setting up his request. He's saying, God, you're great. We have, we've come here because we want to seek your name, and we're doing the right things. These people are doing the wrong things. And now, verse 12, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So here is the problem. All this stuff is happening and now we don't know what to do. We're powerless. They outnumber us. They can easily take us down. So we just look to you and expect you to take care of the problem. So it's not surprising after you read a prayer like that, that God answers Jehoshaphat. A prophet tells him that God's going to help them in the battle. Then as they line up to go out, the army goes out. Uh, Jehoshaphat stands in front of the army and tells them, you trust God. God's going to take care of you. Believe in Jehovah and his prophets. And then Although it's not really explained what happens, the nations they're fighting end up turning on each other and destroying each other. So a Jehoshaphat prayer hinges on the promises and protection of God and the fact that we don't know what to do. So I want to encourage you to try on the Jehoshaphat prayer. Now I'm not saying, when I say this, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that we can only pray to God when there are things that we don't know what to do about. I mean, we can obviously pray when we have some idea of what to do. In fact, we may still have ideas and ask for God's help. It's just that there is some humility in the desperation that you hear in this idea. I don't know what to do. And that humility is something we have a hard time getting a handle on and hanging on to. So this is the kind of prayer that gets us in touch with that sense of humility. So you pray the Jehoshaphat prayer. When you think about the problems you have, or the spiritual weaknesses that you have, or the circumstances that you have, or the inadequacies you feel, and you say, I need help. I don't know what to do. So I just sketched out a few uh, examples of this. A Jehoshaphat prayer would be something like this. Uh, Father, you've given me these children. They're a blessing. I prayed for them, and you answered my prayer. You've protected them through the years, and now I'm facing this problem with them, and I don't know how to deal with it. Maybe that's a physical problem or a mental problem or a discipline problem. I just don't know what to do. I've used my best judgment. I've done everything I know to do. I don't know what to do. My eyes are on you. That's a Jehoshaphat prayer. Father, you've taken care of me up to this point in my life. I'm trying to find work, but the economy is shut down and the bills are due. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Father, you've made me into the person I am, but I know I have weaknesses and struggles, and I want to be a better man. I want to change this thing I don't like about myself, but I don't know what to do. I want to say the right things to my family. I want to tell other people about Jesus, but I don't know what to do. My eyes are on you. So the Jehoshaphat prayer says, what what situations am I in where I'm in over my head? I also, just before we leave this, this kind of reminds me of Solomon. Who, when God says, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon asks for wisdom because he says, I'm just a little child. I don't know how to go out and come in, and I have to judge these people of yours. I don't know how to do it. And so he says, Help, because I'm in over my head. So try on a Jehoshaphat prayer, and you'll find maybe some humility and some strength in that that you might not have otherwise. All right, let's talk now about a Jacob prayer. Let's go to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. So it's been a little bit in our uh, daily devotional reading since we covered this story of of Jacob and Esau. But just to refresh your memory, uh, many years earlier than Genesis 32, Jacob had schemed and stolen the blessing from Esau. Remember, he tricked Isaac, his father, uh, and pretended to be Esau. And then Esau was so upset and mad that he threatened to kill him. Jacob ran away to the east. And now, after a long time, he has come back. And as he approaches coming back, Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. And so Jacob is terrified. Uh, Genesis 32 and verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob is terrified because he doesn't know Esau's intentions. Is he coming to attack? If if he's coming just to greet us, why does he have 400 men? And so he divides his his, uh, family into two parties so at least somebody will survive. And then he prays. Verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love, and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now I want you to notice that Jacob's uh, prayer is bookended by statements God had made to him. He starts there in verse 9, You said to me, return to your country. So I'm here because you told me to come back. And then the end of the prayer in verse 12, You said, I will surely do you good and that uh, make your offspring like the sands of the sea. So he is quoting God back to God. I've actually heard uh, Christians criticize this practice of uh, quoting scripture or saying something back to God that God has said. Uh, I think we can't really criticize that too much because Jacob does it here. And it's not about Jacob trying to preach to God or informing God about something that he doesn't know. He has a point to make. He is saying, you told me to come back here and here I am. So you need to protect me if there's something going on here where Esau is going to come attack me. But he's not there yet. He, he at this point, is not requesting. Instead, he humbles himself. In verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two camps. So he says, I left here and all I had was my stick and here I am, and I'm a a huge family now. I have money, I have family, I have tons and tons of kids. Remember how richly Jehovah had blessed Jacob. Where Jacob had schemed to get the birthright and to get the blessing, then he runs for his life. He goes to Laban, and Laban tricks him and tricks him about his daughters. He ends up marrying more than he intended And Laban tricks him and changes his wages about where he's working. And finally, Jacob is able to get free of Laban, but in the process, he becomes rich. In every instance where Laban was evil, God blessed Jacob. There is a place in our prayers for looking back and remembering what God has done for us and how richly we have been blessed. There is a place of reminding ourselves and reminding God of how much we don't deserve what we have. I am not worthy of the least of these things you've done for me. Then, verse 11, he lays out his requests and fears. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, for I fear him. He just says this, I'm afraid. And again, I think sometimes we feel like emotions like this are improper for prayer. We know that God wants us to move past fear, but when we're afraid, how can we not tell God? I'm here Asking you because you told me to come ask you when I'm afraid, and I am afraid. And then verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be multiplied, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So you said this. And Jacob says, you know, you told me that my descendants would be huge. How can that be if we all get killed by my brother? You said this. So keep your promise. So Jacob asks for God's help because his desire for protection and God's will about saving him and blessing him, they're the same. I want God what you want. Now you make it happen. That's the prayer. So a Jacob prayer looks back to what God has promised or stated and it aligns our wills together with his. And it asks for help in keeping with what God has already said. So let me give you some examples of what that kind of prayer would look like. It might be something like, Father, you told me to bring up my children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. I'm doing that the best I know how. Help me figure this out. Help me reach this child. Help me discipline them in the right way. Or it could be something like, Father, you told me if I seek first your kingdom, I'll have what I need. I'm seeking your kingdom. I don't know how I'm going to get what I need. Don't forget me. Help me. Keep your promise. You said this, and I'm asking you to do what you said. Father, you told me to be anxious for nothing, and to let my request be made known to you, and that you would give me the peace that passes understanding. So I'm here. I need your peace. I'm anxious. I need your help. Here's what I need, and I'm trying to let this go. Help me. So the point of Jacob's prayer is not that God forgot what he had said. It's that we are calling on God to keep his word. And when he does come through and keep his promises, which he will, this also draws our attention to the fact that God still keeps his promises. And we can know that when that happens, it wasn't just a coincidence. It was what God did to fulfill his own word. So try on a Jacob prayer. Take scripture. Look at what God has said to you. And then ask. Ask for help. According to what God has said. Let's go over to the book of Job. Job chapter 1. The third kind of prayer I want us to, to try on is over here in Job. And we're going to call this kind of prayer, uh, I will praise in bad news. Job chapter 1. So just a brief introduction to Job. Job is a righteous man whom God has blessed tremendously. He has a large family. He has great wealth. And yet, that's not really why we remember Job. Job's story is a story of loss. And at Satan's instigation, Job loses almost everything. And the way it unfolds in Job 1 is it's one tragedy after another, one moment after the next. The hammer blows keep hitting. So the oxen and the donkeys are taken by raiders. And then fire from heaven burns up the sheep and the servants. The Chaldeans take the camels and kill the servants watching them. And then the house falls on all his children. And just one after the other, he absorbs these blows. Job 1 in verse 20. Then Job arose. I, I'm, I just have to suspect he's looking around. Where's the next messenger telling me the next bad thing? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job's instinct when he gets all this bad news is to worship God. And this is a short prayer, but I I think it demonstrates a tremendous maturity level. In verse 21, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he says, I came with nothing. What I have been given, I have been given by Jehovah, the Lord gave. I will leave with nothing. Time will come when I will die and what is taken away from me will be taken away by Jehovah. He says a little later in chapter 2 to kind of explain his mindset. He says, "I, I can't only accept good things from God. I have to learn to accept bad things too. Because God is still in control when good things happen or when bad things happen. And in either situation, no matter what goes on in my life, he says, I will praise Jehovah. Blessed be the name of Jehovah. Now that is a challenging prayer. A Job prayer acknowledges what God has done. Jehovah gave. And it acknowledges that even bad news is still within the scope of the will of Jehovah. Jehovah took away. And what Job is saying when he prays this kind of prayer and what we are saying when we pray this kind of prayer is that our service to God is not dependent on all the things he gives us or does for us. We're not free agents that God has to pay. He doesn't have to put a hedge around us so that nothing bad ever happens to us before we'll serve him. He deserves our praise no matter what. Good news and bad news, good times and bad times. And that's why this is a challenging prayer. It is challenging to say these words and mean them. I will praise in bad news. To be able to say that there are things that happen in my life that when God allows them to happen, he still deserves praise. In fact, it seems to me that part of what Job is doing is saying that if I acknowledge that, that bad things have happened, then most of the time there is a blessing that now has been withdrawn. And so I can thank God for the blessing without being frustrated with God for taking it away. So if there are tragedies in our lives, if I lose my job, I can thank God for the time I had a job and all the blessing it was to me. And I can say, you know, even if God decides that I don't deserve that or need that anymore, blessed be the name of the Lord. I will praise even in bad news. Or when Job is thinking about his children, you know, he has, he's lost his children. They've, they've died. To be able to say, there were good times. I'm blessed to have had the time that I had with them. The Lord gave that to me. And if the Lord takes it away, he is in control. His name is still to be praised. There is wisdom and maturity here because it acknowledges what God gives and also acknowledges that we have no claim on God to say, how dare you take something away that I want? There is instead this sense that God is the one in control and not me. And there is also a humility that says, I don't have to have everything that I would like. God is sovereign and God is just. So Job says, I choose contentment strictly from my relationship with Jehovah, not based on what I encounter from others. So try on a Job prayer. I guarantee you it will stretch you. When you get bad news, find a way to think of the bad news as an opportunity to praise God, to ask the question, what has God given me? What can I praise him for? And I am convinced that this one will test us. But try it on and see if we can't pray in a deeper way. And the last prayer that I want to look at is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. This is a prayer of David, and we're going to call it the Who Am I prayer. You'll see what I mean as we go through the, the text here. So what happens in 2 Samuel 7 is... David has asked God whether he can build a house for him. We're talking about what will later be known as the temple. And Nathan, the prophet, initially agrees, yes, go build the temple, but then goes back and says, actually, no, you're not going to build it, but your son is going to build it. He is speaking of Solomon. But God seems especially touched by this desire of David's. David wants to build him a house, and God had not asked for that. It was just something David wanted to do to honor Jehovah. So what he says, what God says is, I'm going to build you a house, David. And he's not talking about a physical house here. He's talking about a a dynasty, a family, a royal line that will be established forever. And he talks about that in the first 17 verses here uh, in uh, 2 Samuel 7. And I I want to read together for uh, just a minute this last section, beginning in verse 18, and see how David responds by praying. 2 Samuel 7, 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build to you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. On one level, you can say this is a prayer that says thanks. There's a little more to it there, though. It's a lot longer and sounds a lot nicer than just thank you. David is overwhelmed by God showering this blessing on him. And he asks the question in verse 18, Who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now when he says that, what he's talking about is back in verse 8, God had said to him, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. And so he says, David, remember how this all began? Little shepherd boy, Remember how this all began with five stones and a sling? I did that for you. I brought you from watching the sheep and I've made you king and I've made you an awesome king. And now I'm going to make you a house. And David says, who am I? What is my house that you've done all this for me? And yet he says, this is small to you, God. And you're talking about things, years in the future, people that haven't been born yet, and how you're going to take care of them. And David says, I'm just honored. What else can I say? You are great, and what you're doing is just to the glory of your name. So he has really just this one request. In verse 25, he asks God to confirm forever the word he has spoken. And then in verse 29, that... Um, Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servants so that it may continue forever before you. Bless me in the way that you've said. So David's prayer, the the who am I prayer, starts with this acknowledgement of all that God has done for him. He says, I am beyond flattered. I am humbled. Who am I? Why would you do all this for me? It reminds me of when David says, this is in Psalm 8, uh, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you visit him. You made him a little lower than the angels. But it's much more personal than what is man. It's who am I? Of all the men, what makes me so different from others that you would bless me this way? This is a prayer we pray when we receive a blessing because we acknowledge the blessing and we acknowledge our unworthiness. Especially, it seems to me, to be a blessing when we receive something that is outside the norm or outside what we would expect. And the challenge of this prayer, the who am I prayer, is that David's language doesn't allow us any room to assume that we deserve the good things God gives us. It's all his. It's up to his will. We are just sinners. We have no claim on God. So I encourage you, as you experience good things in your life, as you have people do things for you, as you have things work out for you, as you look at things and you say, I'm not sure exactly why it happened that way, to pray a David prayer in gratitude to God. Try that on and see how your language and your thoughts can be changed by asking the question, who am I? So those are the four prayers I want to talk about. I just want to say a couple of things and we'll be done for tonight. As I did some work in these prayers this week, I noticed something really powerful In every one of these prayers, there is some kind of acknowledgement of what God has done. Jehoshaphat starts with that long recounting of how God had brought them into the land. Uh, Jacob talks about all that God had done for him, particularly. I crossed the Jordan with just my staff, and now I've come back, and I'm, I'm two parties. Job talks about the Lord gave. And David talks about how he has come so far, and God has blessed him so richly. In fact, even when they're making requests, every request is couched in the idea of what God has already done. And I think that's a practice that we might need to adopt. Before we ask for more, maybe there should be a time where we acknowledge what's already been given. In each prayer, there is some acknowledgement of our insufficiency and dependency. I don't know if you caught that. Obviously, Jehoshaphat, I don't know what to do. Here's Jacob says, I'm Utterly unworthy of all the kindness that you've given me. Here is Job who says, I I came here naked and I'll go naked. And here is David who says, who am I? What have I done to deserve any of this? It seems to me that it would be worth our time and effort to acknowledge our insufficiency and weakness when we pray to God. We don't like those terms. Uh, We don't like to think of ourselves as weak or insufficient in any way. And yet, that is the fundamental way we approach God. We are always weak and insufficient, particularly when we are compared to Him. And in each prayer where a request is made, there appears to be a good reason why these people give as to why God should answer their prayer. Give me this because, whether that's talking about the the name and the glory of God and His people, whether that's talking about God fulfilling His word, you said this, now bring it to pass, or whether it's just the fact that God deserves to be praised in whatever setting he is in, or whether that's the idea continue to bless your servant and keep this going because then people will know that you truly are the God of Israel. In any of those circumstances, what they're saying is, God, help me with this because it will show your glory and it will show your faithfulness. It seems to me it would be a good practice for us to learn how to ask for things and then talk to God about why those things should happen. Maybe that's because God's already made promises and this would fulfill them, or maybe it's because in some way we see God's glory increasing if he were to answer our prayers. Here is my encouragement. Stretch yourself. Try on a new prayer. Walk around in it for a little while. Break it in. Get used to the feel of it. Get used to the thoughts and expressions, and challenge yourself in this. Let's grow by trying on some new prayers. Would you pray with me about that? And we'll be done for our study tonight. Our God and Father, we are so thankful to you. You have in so many ways blessed us. You have given us life. You have sustained us down to this very night. You have helped us in so many ways, many of which we don't acknowledge or remember. And even now, we can gather as your people, we can open your word together, we can think about your will, we can unite as brothers and sisters in Christ, because long before we were born, you sent your son to die for our sins, you've preserved that message of your love for us, so that through the ages, so many have been touched by it, and their lives changed by it, and that those of us who have submitted to it, we now have hope and direction for our lives. Father, for these blessings, we thank you and we acknowledge that we are completely unworthy of all that you've given us. Father, we are in a state and a time in which we are confused and scared and we don't know what to do. And we ask for your help. Father, we ask for your wisdom as we make decisions for our families. We ask for wisdom for those who are leading us that they will make decisions that will help us and be in our best interests. Father, we ask for help for our leaders in this congregation as they make choices that will affect us and affect your people. And Father, we ask these things so that your word can continue to have its free course, so that your people can continue to serve and worship you, so that in all things you may be glorified. Father, we thank you for the good times and the bad times of our lives. Help us, Father, to always find room and place to thank you and to give you glory for all that you do. We pray you'll watch over us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.